refrain from any commentary on the music that precedes my taking the pulpit, and there are reasons for that, but that was outstanding. If you have your Bibles this morning, I want to invite you to turn with me to the book of Revelation chapter number 11. Revelation chapter 11. I will forewarn you, students, that Revelation 11 requires a great deal of you. But even as I say that, I am aware of the fact that I am speaking to students who will uh, step into calculus and physics and chemistry tomorrow. And so I trust that you can handle it, right? Revelation chapter 11 is the center of the book of Revelation. In fact, I could show you with adequate time how the organizational structure of the book of Revelation is pointing all of the attention, the central focus, down to this single chapter here in the middle of the book. In fact, I could go further than that and demonstrate for you how the organizational structure of the book of Revelation is in fact pointing us to a single verse in Revelation chapter 11, which is the centerpiece of the book. This verse captures the essence and the central message of the book of Revelation. If you'll look just quickly at verse 15, Revelation 11:15, The Bible says the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. That is the central message of the book of Revelation. And all of the organizational structure is pointing toward that single statement as the message, the heart of the book of Revelation. You'll experience as we begin to read through the chapter that there is the appearance of the mysterious and the somewhat strange. I'll concede as much, but at its heart is a simple, encouraging, life-giving promise. Brothers and sisters, the God who has saved us will preserve and keep us against that day. He will raise us up on the last day. Our King is coming again. Revelation chapter 11. If you would join me in standing out of respect and honor for the reading of God's word. This is what the word of God says. <clears throat> then I was given a measuring reed like a rod with these words. Go and measure God's sanctuary and the altar and count those who worship there. But exclude the courtyard outside the sanctuary. Don't measure it because it is given to the nations and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. I will empower my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1,260 days dressed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone wants to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and consumes their enemies. If anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this way. These men have the power to close up the sky so that it does not rain during the days of their prophecy. They also have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike each uh, and, and to strike the earth rather with every plague whenever they want. When they finish their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them, conquer them and kill them. Their dead bodies will lie in the public square of the great city, which prophetically is called Sodom in Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. Representatives from the peoples, tribes, languages, and nations 
will view their bodies for three and a half days and not permit their bodies to be put into a tomb. Those who live on the earth will gloat over them and celebrate and send gifts to one another because these two prophets brought judgment to those who live on the earth. But after three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them and they stood on their feet. So great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies watched them. At that moment, a violent earthquake took place and a tenth of the city fell and 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake. The survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is passed. Take note, the third woe is coming. Seventh angel blew his trumpet. And there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word. You may be seated. If you'll hear it, Revelation chapter 11 is an incredibly powerful message, which captures, in my estimation, so much of the heart of discipleship and the weight of the call of the gospel on our life. Verse 1 says, in fact, verses 1 through 3, we can sort of regard together. John has given a measuring reed like a rod, and he's instructed, go and measure God's sanctuary and the altar and count those who worship there. But exclude the courtyard outside the sanctuary. Don't measure it because it's given to the nations and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. I will empower my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1260 days dressed in sackcloth. The key image in these first three verses is that of the temple. The temple had been destroyed about 25 years before John writes the book of Revelation we have today. So it's not a literal temple, it's a symbolic temple. And the idea here is not a prophecy that the temple is going to come again. I see these things in social media. Sometimes you send me messages. Some step toward the reconstruction of the temple in Jerusalem has taken place. And this is supposed to be an indicator to us that something drastic, something eschatological is about to unfold. But this is a symbolic temple signifying something different in our passage. Note that John is instructed to go and to take a measuring reed and to measure the temple. If you've ever bought a piece of property or been around the purchase of a property, you know that in order to secure a good legal description, in order to finalize the deal, you need a survey, you need a measurement of the property. If you are selling the property, you need a good legal description in order to convey the deed for that property. What's symbolized here in part is that God is taking possession of this temple. But this is not your ordinary temple. Even in the life of Jesus and the ministry of Jesus, he was hinting at a transition in the way we think about the temple. For hundreds and even thousands of years, the tabernacle or the temple had served to represent that place where people meet with God. Perhaps more importantly, that place where God meets with people. But Jesus in his ministry would say again and again and again, tear down this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. 
What Jesus was signifying was perhaps in part the destruction of the temple years later, but more importantly, theologically, the idea that we no longer meet God in a specific building, we meet God in the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. We meet God in the body and behind the blood of Jesus. When Jesus said, tear down this temple and I'll rebuild it, he spoke clearly of himself, dying on the cross in our place, being buried in a grave but resurrected on the third day. Jesus did in, indeed build, rebuild the temple in but three days, only he would revolutionize this place of meeting, no more in a building, but in his body would we meet with the Father. And this imagery continues across the New Testament. Peter refers to us as not only a holy nation, a royal priesthood, but as spiritual stones. We are by faith in Christ being stacked one upon another, building up this new temple, which is the body of Christ. Even the way we reference ourselves being members of the body. We don't mean members like members in a club. We mean members like members of the body. That becomes the metaphor for describing the body of Christ here on earth. We have met with God in the body and behind the blood of Jesus. What's being symbolized here is that God is taking possession of his people in the temple, which is the body of our Lord Jesus Christ. Not only is John instructed to measure or to survey the temple, but to count the number of those in the sanctuary. God knows the number and the names of every person in that sanctuary. In the temple before its destruction, you had the sanctuary where worshipers would gather, the people of God would gather, and then you had the outer courts for the Gentiles. That outer court is not measured. It would be trampled under by the nations. There would be an extended period of time in which it appears that the nations rule the world. The reality observed within the sanctuary is that Jesus is the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords. Symbolically, what's happening in our passage is that God is possessing and protecting his people. He always has and he always will. God has guarded his people. He not only saves us, but he protects us. He preserves us. He will keep us against that day. From time to time, someone will come to me with questions of salvation, the concept or idea of losing your salvation. If you could lose your salvation, you would. You already would have, and you would again. You're not keeping it because you're holding on to it. You're keeping it because God is actively holding on to you. God possesses his people. He has taken hold of our heart, and he will not let us go. God will possess and protect his people. Now, there's some numbers here. 42 months, 1260 days. 42 months is three and a half years. 1260 days, assuming a 360 day calendar, which was the calendar in the days of John the Revelator, that's three and a half years. Now what he's doing here is, is playing on a passage that is central to Old Testament prophecy. In fact, if you'd like, you can turn back with me to Daniel chapter nine. Now Daniel nine 
some would argue, is the Revelation 11 of the Old Testament. Daniel 9 is where we have effectively captured the future history of Israel as a nation until the time of the Messiah, and even beyond that, until the end. I want to read a few verses, and I'll make some brief commentary. This, this is solely for those who have a, a, a keen interest in the background, especially the Old Testament background of Revelation chapter 11. We'll return to regular programming in just a moment. Daniel 9, 24 says, 70 weeks are decreed about your people in your holy city to bring the rebellion to an end, to put a stop to sin, to wipe away iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, etc., etc. Verse 25, know and understand this, from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. I'm no mathematician, but that's 70 weeks minus one. It will be rebuilt without a plaza and a moat, but in difficult times, or with rather a plaza and a moat, but in difficult times. And after those 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and will have nothing. The people of the coming prince will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come with a flood. And until the end, there will be war. Desolations are decreed. So the Messiah is going to come. The Messiah will be killed. This will initiate or begin the very last days, the final week of this 70-week prophecy. And then the final week is captured in summary form in verse 27. He, who is the prince of darkness, will make a firm covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and offering. And the abomination of desolation will be on a wing of the temple until the decreed destruction is poured out on the desolator. Now, we could spend the rest of this morning's time together, but we won't. So just give you the short form. That prophecy becomes the pattern by which all apocalyptic prophecy is told from that point forward. The fact that this one-week period is used to indicate the period of the last times and a period of great tribulation is the reason Jesus uses the imagery of a seven-year period of tribulation when he prophesies in Matthew 24 and Mark chapter 13. And Jesus describes that seven-year period as having three and a half years of relative difficulty but peace and proclamation with regards to the gospel and then a three-and-a-half-year period of great, intense tribulation when Satan seems to be running loose and wreaking havoc on the church. Now, what John is doing in Revelation chapter 11 is telling the story of those of the two halves of that one-week period. In verses 1 through 6, he tells the story of the first half of that period. And in verses 7 through 10, he tells the story of the second half of that period. So bear that in mind. 42 months, 1260 days, this is the first half of the 70th week of Daniel's prophecy. In the first part of the last days, that's what he's saying here. The time from Jesus' resurrection until virtually the end, the first part. Because in the second half, it is greatly abbreviated. I'll show you that in just a moment. Verse 4. These are the two, we're back to regular programming for those of you who may have zoned out momentarily. Verse four, these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. 
If anyone wants to harm them, fire, consumes, uh, fire comes rather from their mouths and consumes their enemies. If anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this way. These men have the power to close up the sky so that it does not rain during the days of their prophecy. They also have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every plague whenever they want. Now, disciple now students, I thought about totally changing the passage. These verses are why I didn't. I want you to come in real close and listen carefully here. It may seem complex, but the message is simple and it is profound and it is powerful and incredibly relevant to your generation. What's being described here is the empowerment of these two witnesses. I'll cut to the chase and tell you that the two witnesses symbolize the church. The two witnesses represent the church. That might seem a little bit strange. Why two? That's never a number of significance. It's not three. It's not seven. It's not 10. It's not 12. It's not a thousand. In the Bible, two really is not a number that bears incredible significance until you remember that in the book of Revelation, there are seven literal churches referenced in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. And only two of those churches, Smyrna and Pergamum, are said to be faithful churches. And those churches are witnessing at the doorstep of Satan, where Satan's throne exists and where persecution is immensely intense against them. These faithful, faithful witnesses cast as two witnesses from Old Testament examples is a nod to the faithful churches of Smyrna and Pergamum. These witnesses represent the church. In other words, these witnesses represent us who have entrusted our soul to Jesus. Now they're being empowered here in incredible ways to preach the message of the gospel. There's a series of Old Testament images used in our passage in, in, a, in a very interesting way. There, there's some parallels that exist within the images that are being used in our passage. The first is the two olive trees and the two lampstands. What's interesting is that John begins at the end of the Old Testament and he goes all the way back to the beginning, citing these examples from Israel's history. The two olive trees and the two lampstands come from Zechariah chapter 4. And they had reference specifically to Joshua, the high priest, and to Zerubbabel, the governor of Israel, when the Israelites came back to rebuild the city of Jerusalem and to reconstruct the temple. Jerusalem had been demolished. The temple had been destroyed. Israel comes back to reconstitute themselves as a nation, to rebuild the city, and to reconstruct the temple. Now, the olive tree and the lampstand is a part of a, a bigger image, a bigger symbol in Zechariah chapter 4. You have a menorah in Zechariah chapter 4. You know what a menorah looks like. You see them during the Christmas and Hanukkah season. A menorah. And the menorah is being fed by a small pipe that comes from two bowls that bear the oil that burns in the light. And over the bowl are two olive trees which are dripping olive oil into those bowls so that the light burns in perpetuity. It never stops burning. It continues to burn forever. 
Joshua and Zerubbabel are a part of this symbolism. This is a passage where the Bible says that it's not by power nor by might, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. There's a reminder built into the imagery of the lampstand and the olive trees that God is providing the ability by the presence of his Holy Spirit symbolized in the olive oil, and he's pouring himself out into Joshua and Zerubbabel. In other words, God is enabling by the power of his Holy Spirit, Joshua and Zerubbabel to rebuild the temple in their day. The second image is a fire consuming one's enemy. These two witnesses breathe forth fire. If anyone opposes them, they breathe fire and it consumes them. I can remember in the early days of, uh, of our life together as husband and wife, Brandy and I, without the uh, amenity of satellite television, trying to find anything and everything that we could to watch that was acceptable and appropriate to young Christian people watching one of those original left behind movies. In this particular uh, episode or scene, they were featuring Moses and Elijah walking through the city of Jerusalem, breathing fire out of their mouth. It looked as funny as it sounds. And I can say to you with confidence that that is not what Revelation chapter 11 is about. We're back to this imagery of the war of words. Remember in the last chapter, the opposition of the church. It stung with its tail, it worked acts of violence, but the greatest threat that the church's opposition posed was the preaching of the propaganda of its day. It wasn't so much a concern that the church would fall by the sword as it was that the church would succumb to the propaganda of the day, that the church would fall victim to believing that Caesar and not Jesus is Lord. They can harm your physical body. You may be threatened and even die at the tip of the spear, but, but no man can touch the soul. That's, that's where the great danger lies. It was what they said with their mouths, the power of the horses in their mouth, Revelation 10 says. Here we're told that the two witnesses, the church, breathe forth fire. The weapon of our warfare is the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is how we win in the end. It's by the preaching of the gospel. The kingdom is never advanced at the edge of the blade, the tip of the spear, or the end of a gun. Always at the preaching of the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Such is the case with these two witnesses. Now this breathing fire, it's, it's drawn from the imagery of Elijah calling down fire on the guards of, of, of uh, Ahaziah in 2 Kings chapter 1, verses 9 and following. Since 50 men out with a guard... And the guard, in kind of a flattering way, calls to Elijah, O man of God. And Elijah says, if I'm a man of God, may fire fall from heaven and consume your troops. And that's what happens. And then they send some more, and they send some more, and they finally wise up, and they stop sending and provoking Elijah the prophet. But he has the power in that episode to call down fire from heaven. God has empowered him to overcome his enemies. There's further Elijah imagery here, the, the imagery of drought. They have the ability to bring about drought and famine, as our passage describes. The same way Elijah was empowered by God to uphold the prophetic office by turning off the spigot of heaven and turning it back on by prayer at a later date. 
Elijah was empowered by God to preserve the office of prophet faithfully by the presence and power of his Holy Spirit. They're said here to have the power to turn water to blood and to perform great plagues. This is the work of Moses. Moses was empowered by God to perform miracles and to bring plagues on Egypt, to bring about the deliverance of the people of God. Now listen, this is where the message is. This is the principle. Just as God has empowered his people throughout the history of Israel for the work to which he would call them, he has now promised to empower the church in the face of great opposition for the preaching of the gospel. No matter how much opposition there may be, God has empowered you to remain faithful to that message. On every front and in every way, there are challenges to our faith in Jesus. And we can grow insular, we can sort of huddle up into our, into our little groups, we can become echo chambers for our gripes and our concerns, our desires, our interests, expressing our frustration at the world around us. Or we can press in as salt and light to a dying and decaying world, preaching the life-giving message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, never shrinking back from the standard of God's word, confident that God will empower us every step along the way. The greater challenges to these young people today than you could have fathomed in your day. You could not have imagined. I see raising three children, challenges to their faith, ways that Christian foundations and values are undermined that they're not even aware of. It's like, like sometimes people come to me and they're all concerned about various things. Like most recently, it's a Satan worship service on the Grammys or some kind of overt indoctrination through Disney. Those things concern me. Frankly, those things make me angry. But anyone with any discernment could see these things coming a long time ago and would have recognized the far more subtle and effective ways that your kids are being indoctrinated in things that you find respectable or reasonable for them to be exposed to. Like, I wish that Satan always came as a satanic worship service with a transgender singer on the Grammys. Like, I think we all got that that's of hell. It's the more subtle things. It's the sneaky little things that make their way in, like the disrespect of parents that they've been taught in live Disney shows for now 20 years. Like an inclination toward rebellion, a desire to go their own way, to follow their own heart. A wink and nod at white lies. A wink and nod at respectable sins. There are ways that this generation is being challenged in their faith that, that, that were beyond the pale for you in your day. There are ways that even you as adults are being pressed upon to accommodate, to distort, and to manipulate the message of the gospel in order to suit the will, the wishes, and the desires of the culture around us today. And I would note here that God has not promised to empower us in the preaching of a manipulated, distorted, or watered-down gospel of Jesus Christ, but the gospel of Jesus Christ as set forth in the Scripture. 
And I would challenge you young people especially that you would come back again and again and again to the standard of God's word, to evaluate the culture, to evaluate, to evaluate what you're taught, to, evalu to evaluate the way you even think and feel about certain ideas or concepts. It matters not what the pastor says or how you feel about a given issue or what an instructor, a professor, or a teacher has to say. It matters not what you see in the nightly news or what you're encouraged to believe in your social media stream. What matters, what is objectively and absolutely truth, is the Word of God. An external source of authority outside of yourself must be the standard. God is promising here he will empower his people in the face of great opposition. They're enemies, right? There's opposition. These two witnesses are breathing fire because there is opposition. Look at verse 7. They finish their testimony. The beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them, conquer them, kill them. Wait a minute, pastor. You said God will possess and protect his people. Gospel's promise of protection has never involved our, our physical protection from persecution and suffering. I wish, it, I wish it did. I wish I could say that to you. It sells, right? In fact, it's, it's right the opposite. The invitation of the gospel comes with the warning that all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will inevitably suffer persecution. The protection is a spiritual protection, that you'll not succumb to the satanic propaganda of the day, but would hold fast by the inner working of the Holy Spirit to the true message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. These witnesses are conquered, and they are killed. Their dead bodies will lie in the public square of the great city, which is prophetically called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. They're dead, and they're lying in the streets of the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is referred to here as Sodom and Egypt prophetically, which is to say that Jerusalem is now numbered among those infamous places that have denied the free gift of God's salvation. Sodom called to repentance would not turn. Egypt called to repentance would not turn. Jerusalem called to repentance would not turn. They have now been numbered together. Verse 9 tells us that representatives from the peoples, tribes, languages, and nations will view their bodies for three and a half days and not permit their bodies to be put into a tomb. For three and a half days. This is the other half of Daniel's 70th week for those who are following after that word of prophecy. Now, it's a long time in the first half. It's really not half, right? It's like a cheat half. You've got a long first half. And then the second half is only three days. In other words, the second half has been shortened. I'm reminded of the words of Jesus in Matthew 24. Except those days were shortened. Not even the elect could withstand the difficulty and the hardship of that season. They would not permit that their bodies be put into a tomb. The only way to further disgrace or desecrate a body is to leave it to lie rotting in the street. Verse 10. Those who live on the earth will gloat over them and celebrate and send gifts to one another because these two prophets brought judgment to those who live on the earth. They were happy that they were dead because they brought judgment. Y'all follow me here. If these two witnesses represent the church, they are dead. And the world is glad they are dead because they brought judgment. 
In fact, they're so happy that they're dead that they, they give and receive gifts to commemorate this occasion when the church is dead. They celebrate that the church is dead because the church brings judgment. One of the things that I think is especially difficult for you, frankly, I, I, I'm finding this more and more difficult for, for me, and I'm a father of two of you. There's so much pressure to yield to the ethical standard of the world, which is a direct violation of the ethical standard of the Bible. Like your friends at school that don't love Jesus are happy to hear about Jesus until you come to the place in your conversation about Jesus where repentance becomes a part of that equation. The world is happy to hear about an all-loving, warm, and cuddly kind of Jesus. But there is very little interest in a Jesus who comes to Lord with great authority over our life. A Jesus that demands that we become subjects of his kingship in every area of our life. In fact, if there's a presentation of the gospel that militates against the gospel of our current culture, it's the presentation we find in Revelation chapter 11. The gospel of Jesus Christ bids us come and die not find some fuller expression of who we are, not following after our heart, not doing the things that we in fleshly ways desire to do, a gospel that bids us come and die. This is the message of the gospel. I'm, I'm, I'm celebrating, Pastor Jason, we're, we're talking earlier about some television promotions that will happen during the Super Bowl tonight, inviting people to Jesus, that he gets us ad campaign. I'm celebrating that these kinds of things are happening, that there are fires of interest in seeing the masses come to faith in Jesus that are popping up in different places. But I'm, I'm not sure the world, even in its current state, is disinterested in a Jesus that exclusively gets us. I think the disinterest begins and the vitriol begins when Jesus begins to impose his will on our life. And you need to be cautious of a half-baked gospel that sounds good and co-ops the terminology of the Bible, but has absolutely zero saving power in your life. The gospel of Jesus Christ makes no accommodation for our feelings, our impositions, our imagination about what's culturally appropriate or what might be acceptable. The mind, the will, and the word of God is unbending and it is unyielding. We are to make ourselves in the gospel of Jesus Christ subjects to his kingship, which means that he now calls the shots. So in our passage, the church is dead. And the world rejoices. But thankfully, this is not the end of the story. Look at verse 10, verse 11 rather. But after three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet. So great, great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies watched them. At that moment, a violent earthquake took place. A tenth of the city fell, and 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake. The survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Now, this is the message of Revelation. Think about what's happened. Put on, put on your sanctified imagination thinking cap for just a moment. The church has died. 
And for three and a half days, the church lies dead and the world rejoices. But after three and a half days, the church is resurrected, rising from the ashes. And the result of this resurrection is that many are turned to faith in Jesus. You, you realize that this is a reversal of the experience of Elijah. 7,000 died in the earthquake. There was an episode in 1 Kings chapter 18 when Elijah called down fire on Mount Carmel and 450 prophets of Baal were killed. Within a few short verses, at the threats of Jezebel, Ahab, or rather Elijah has run off into the wilderness and he's crying out to God in a, in a moment of great depression. He's suicidal in the wilderness and God reveals to him as a means of encouragement, Elijah, I have 7,000 in Israel who have not yet bowed the knee. Now in the moment, that's encouraging. That I'm not alone, that there are 7,000 others who are with me and having pledged their allegiance to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob alone. But in retrospect, it's a little pitiful. There's only 7,000 in all of Israel? This is the reversal of that. 7,000 die in the earthquake and everyone else repents of their unbelief. They see something in the experience of the church, the gladness with which they would die, the joy for resurrection they possessed, moved them to believe the message of the gospel. And I'm not saying to you that on the last day there's going to be this sweeping movement of God wherein everyone who lives is going to be saved. What John is communicating is a principle that we've been observing in now 2,000 years of church history, that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. There's something about our willful death to self, the willingness of a Christian believing in the doctrine of resurrection, a willingness to walk face first into death with joy and gladness in our heart. Now think about the imagery used to symbolize this reality. The witnesses are in Jerusalem. They're killed and the world rejoices. They lie dead for three and a half days and then they're raised again. This is the pattern of Jesus' passion. The passion of Jesus Christ has become the passion of the church. If you don't get anything about the Revelation series, get this. This is it. This is the message. The passion of the Christ has become the passion of the church. You understand what I mean when I say that? I remember years ago when the movie Passion of the Christ came out, I wondered how many people think this is about what Jesus is excited about. Like this is a movie about Jesus's favorite football team. When, when I'm talking to you this morning about the passion of Jesus, that's just a catch-all term for the last week of Jesus's life. His passion was his willingness for the joy that was set before him in resurrection and the salvation of people of every tongue and tribe and nation to endure the cross. That is his passion. Jesus' death on the cross, that period of the world rejoicing over his death, for he brought judgment his victory in resurrection and how he draws people to himself in his death and resurrection. That is his passion. In the same way that Jesus through his passion, through his death and resurrection, have drawn men to himself, so now the church has been invited through our death and resurrection to draw people of every tongue and tribe and nation to the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see the pattern? 
People ask me, especially in recent weeks, preaching through this book, what's your end times view? What's your eschatology? I'm far more interested in the eschatology of Jesus. And he cites it in a single verse. Take up your cross and follow after me. If you want a catchy slogan for what Revelation is describing, passion of Jesus Christ represents the inauguration of the kingdom. But the passion of Jesus' church represents the consummation of the kingdom. The kingdom is brought to bear through the passion of the church. Do, do you feel the weight of what John is describing? Are you getting what I'm saying this morning? Jesus bids us to come and die. Not only to die for ourselves, but to possess with joy in our hearts a willingness to die, literally if necessary, in the face of persecution and opposition. Because we believe that Jesus is the only begotten Son of God who lived without sin, who died in our place on the cross, who rose again on the third day as the assurance of our resurrection. We can risk life and limb. We can live with reckless abandon. Because on the other side of the threshold of death is the gift of resurrection, assuring us that anything that might be lost in this life will be restored and all the more by his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. That's the message. And it ought to embolden us to live full and free with liberty and abandon fearlessly standing firm on the gospel in the face of imperial propaganda. We don't tremble before tyrants because Jesus is the Lord of our life. And you needn't tremble before your friends or any group or, 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 or anyone. You needn't tremble when you're faced with the propaganda of this day. You need not be afraid because God has empowered you and will empower you. He has saved you and he will keep you even in the face of opposition to preach the message of the gospel that saves us from our sin. This is great news. This is great news. Now, I'll, I'll be honest. Through all of the symbolism of Revelation 11... I have not sensed yet today that you are as excited about this as I am, but you really should be. This is the gospel. This is our hope eternally. Just one more passage, verse 15. The seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. Kingdoms of this world become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. Jesus is coming. Sometimes I think, I know, when we think about the coming of Christ, we think about it in ways that are unhelpful. I, I can remember, back to early married life examples, I can remember my wife, being fearful and crying over existing notions of what the second coming of Jesus was supposed to be like. I didn't know what it was supposed to be like, but I knew it wasn't supposed to be like that. The, the gospel and the, the promise of the second coming is not, oh no, my father is coming home, hide. 
the gospel and the promise of second coming is, oh boy, my father is coming home. Let's run out to meet him. That's, that's the way we regard the promise of Jesus's second coming. I think there's some unknown that we've created with misrepresentations of what heaven and resurrection is really going to be like. The passage I always go back to in my mind is that, that famous passage in Philippians where Paul says, our citizenship is not here, but in heaven. What, what makes that observation so interesting to me is, is that the people of Philippi were themselves citizens of Rome. That was unique. It, 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 was, it was not often that someone who lived outside the city could, could be identified as a Roman citizen. You might be a citizen of the empire, but to be a citizen of that city was another level of privilege within the Roman Empire. Because of the Philippian history, some of their background and exchange between the city of Rome and the city of Philippi, the city was granted the special privilege of its citizens being citizens of the city of Rome. And so Paul says to a group that understands citizenship, your citizenship is not here, it is in heaven. He, he might also have said, your citizenship is not here in Philippi, it is in Rome. But people in Philippi never assumed that having Roman citizenship meant for them that one day they were going to get to pack up all of their bags and move to the city of Rome. What it meant for them was if anything bad ever happened, that Rome would come to help. That if there was a military invasion, that Rome would raise her armies and come to save the day. If there were ever a famine in the city of Philippi, Rome would muster its forces and gather its food supplies, and Rome would come to save the day. Our, my beau, our four-year-old, is at superhero stage. He saves the day everywhere he goes. He comes into a room to save the day. That's how Rome arrives in the city of Philippi. The idea here is, is, is not that we ought to be in dreadful fear of Jesus coming. It's not even that something mysterious, unknown, and unknowable awaits us. The idea here is that when things get as bad as they can conceivably be, Jesus is coming from heaven where our citizenship is. And he's going to meet all our needs according to his riches and glory. The idea is that when the enemy has opposed us, when our back is against the wall, Jesus is coming to save the day. The idea is that when the famine is severe and we're without water and the drought has set its way in, Jesus is coming to bring bread and water. The idea is Jesus is coming to make everything that has been so wrong so right for us because our citizenship is there by faith in Jesus. It's the message of our passage. I don't know if you could find another passage in the New Testament that does a better job of capturing within 15 short verses the essence of the Christian faith and the fullness of the promises of the gospel. A better job than Revelation chapter 11. He, he's possessing and protecting his people. He's empowered you. He's empowered us as the church to bear witness to the truth of the gospel. And though our lives may be taken away, and indeed one day they will, he will restore to us in resurrection all this world has robbed us of and all the more by his great power. 
Jesus is coming to save the day. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, thank you for your word, for its truth. I, I pray that the seriousness and the severity of these verses would resonate with those who are gathered here. God, I, I pray that each one would take an account of where they stand or would consider what they'll do with the message of the gospel. Pray that you'd give them eyes to see and ears to hear, hearts to discern. God, do supernaturally what only you can do. Touch and turn the hearts of boys and girls and men and women. May there be many today who repent of their sin and believe the message of the gospel for their salvation. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.